Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. And thank you for coming out. Thank you for being here. And uh, we're, we're looking at the third session for in uh, uh, Habits of Happiness. And tonight we'll be looking at sustaining uh, happiness in the heart. So we'll talk about how we can do that. Five hindrances to happiness in our hearts and five things that we can do to uh, create within us that spirit of uh, joy and particularly a spirit of happiness. So as we get ready to hear that uh, tonight, uh, take, just take a few minutes and just turn to the Lord in prayer. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Father, we thank you that in this season of anticipation of your Son being born in fresh new ways in our hearts and our families, we thank you, Lord, that you give us the gift of your joy that is meant to live in us, to permeate all our different circumstances that we face, both the good times as well as the trying times. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of joy that is meant to build in us confidence in your promises and promise and confidence in you working in our life. So tonight, Lord, as we break open Paul's letter to the Philippians, as we look at cultivating in our hearts the habits of happiness that will help us to live with the thought that we choose to be happy. Help us, Lord, to see in Paul's letter just what we need to know, what we need to hear that will help us uh, make those wise choices so that we can be a people who walk in the spirit of joy, who walk in confidence in you and your promises to us. And we, this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, uh, if you look at your outlines, we'll start there, actually. Um, and although we're going to get to Philippians 2, we're actually not going to start right away with that because it has needs a little bit of a context for us. So, um, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2 actually... Um, is preceded by his beautiful, what some have called a hymn, uh, and that is uh, his hymn regarding Christ as the servant. And that hymn, found in Philippians chapter 2, the very first beginning of the chapter there, is kind of sets the tone for the whole chapter. And when we look at what it means to sustain happiness in the heart, Paul points us to Jesus as the model for us. So, we're going to t just very briefly look at chapter 2 in Philippians, uh, verse 1, and kind of start there. With the idea that um, Paul's exhortation to live like Jesus implies having the kind of heart, the servant heart that Jesus had. Um, a kind of heart that lives in a spirit of humility, a heart that is more eager to receive uh, the the gifts of God's love into our life, and then we can share that with others as we see in the person of Jesus. So Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Remember, the, the, the community of the Philippi community is a community that uh, Paul established himself, is a community that was uh, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, a community that was not wealthy in any sense of imagination. They had no real status in the society. As we saw two weeks ago, they were a community that basically what today we would call were people of the service industry in our culture. So that's exactly what the Philippians were. They're people of the service industry. Um, and so you can see they, they weren't the, the up and coming. They weren't the, the nobles of society. They weren't the rich and the famous. You know, They were 
very ordinary people that we find today in our own culture that are service oriented. Paul is writing to these people. So Philippians 2, uh, verse 1, uh, we begin first there. I'm going to go quickly through this because it's not the main focus, but it is the backdrop for tonight, understanding what we'll be talking about. He says in verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, my affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so he's trying to set the tone. He says, I'm going to lay out a picture for you in which we can be of one mind, one heart, the same mindset. Um, And here's the reason why. Verse 2, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then here is the catch for him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, now he begins and talks about Christ Jesus as the model. Though, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so Paul says he wants Christians of Philippi to have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ look like? It's a mind of a servant. It's a mind of humility. It's a mind of preferring the interests of others over oneself. And Paul says that Christ exemplified that so much that he even underwent death. Death on a cross. Now, death is one thing. Cross is an entirely another kind of death. Cross was a humiliating, uh, despicable, uh, it was the death of a criminal, basically. Anyone who died on a cross died the death of a criminal. The Roman Roman, uh, government put people to death on the cross because they were criminals against the state. So Jesus died as a criminal. No. Um, That was the the civil or the state tag put on Jesus when he was put to death. Uh, the Jewish people saw him as a blasphemer. Actually, the Jewish leaders that is, saw him as a blasphemer. So Jesus died as a blasphemer under Jewish law, and he died under Roman law as a criminal against the state. And, uh, and so we follow him. We follow him. And then, and then on the boot, the Christian said, you know, three days later, he rose from the dead. So, so you can imagine to the Roman culture and people of the time, tell your neighbor that. I'm following a criminal, right, who, who was a blasphemer under Jewish law, and he rose from the dead, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> See how that might sound to people? Because that was 2,000 years ago. Sometimes it sounds just as preposterous to now, you know, in people's ears today. So, but that's who we're following. And look at what Paul says in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Okay, and then he says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Lord is an amazing statement. Lord means there's no rival to him. No government, no emperor, no army, no military, no economy can rival Jesus and his truth. 
Okay? And so that's what Paul is saying, that that's the backdrop we're going to study here tonight about sustaining happiness in the heart. He's saying, here's the model of Jesus. It has practical application to our life, though. As we're going to look at tonight is the practical application of that. So if you go to your outline real quickly, um, under number one, Letter A, number one, Jesus is the model servant, model of a servant. And servant, to be a servant in the ancient world was despicable. It was like you didn't want to be a servant because a servant had no rights, had no, had nothing to say, was basically under the direction of somebody else. Jesus is Lord, as we just said. Nothing can rival him. And then number three is the Christian is called to put on the mind of Christ. In other words, the practical application of Christ as the servant now it comes to the life of the Christian. And we're going to, that's what we're going to look at here tonight. So the ultimate paradigm for Christian living then is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. Jesus as the servant who obediently accepted death. So what Paul was to do tonight as we'll look at this is applying that to our life under the terms of working out our salvation. So now let's go to Philippians um, chapter 2, verse 12. Let's start there. And this is where we want to look at tonight, through verse 20. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only, as, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be pr- I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also shall be glad and rejoice with me. And then he has some final words here. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you as soon as I may be cheered by the news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. Okay, so let's go back. We're going to look at, uh, um, before we actually get into uh, the heart of the outline tonight, let's go back to verse 12. And I want to just look at the phrase, therefore, my beloved. Paul is calling the Christians at Philippi beloved. It was a, it's a really a term of affection and endearment. It was a term that was oftentimes used of Israel in the Old Testament. They were called the firstborn of, of the Lord, the beloved of his. Um, and so it's a, a term of infection, endearment, but it's also a term of belonging. So the Lord sees that his people belong to him. And the reason why uh, Paul states that, it's not by accident he calls the flip, Philippi Christians the beloved of the Lord. He's trying to set their true identity like, what is your identity? You're beloved of the Father. You know, you're beloved of him. You belong to him. So right there from the start, if you belong to him, then you are to live like he wants you to live. But also, you don't have to have fear of living like he wants you to live because you're his. And he's going to protect you and empower you and help you to do just that because you're his beloved. You know? So, and that was a term that was used of Israel now it's used of Christians. And I think that's an important term to understand ourselves as beloved of the Father. Reason why is because how we how we understand our identity is going to determine how we live, basically. 
Okay, and then now we get to the heart of the outline here. Number Under number two, we're going to look at five hindrances to sustaining a heart of happiness. Okay, the first is, the first hindrance is carelessness about one's salvation. Carelessness. As Catholics, we believe that our salvation begins in our baptism. Uh, and then we are called to cooperate with that grace and and grow in that and work it out um, in our life with the Lord's help, obviously, as we'll see that tonight. St. Augustine made a great statement. He said that, and he was a great champion of infant baptism, by the way. He said that persons who are baptized as infants, if they do not grow up living in conformity to it, it profits them nothing, he said. So it, it really, it, um, Paul talks about taking understanding and taking seriously what happened to us and our salvation. So let's take a look at his verse here, verses 12 and 13. You must continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with deep reverence and humility. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. The language here of work out is in the Greek, it means energy. In other words, it requires energy on our part. In other words, effort on our part. But also knows who else is working it out. God who works in you. It's the same word, energy. So you have you working out. In other words, you applying an effort. And God is applying effort too. So it's a combination. It's a partnership with him. So look at the verse again, verse 12. You must continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This was an Old Testament allusion by Paul. It, it rings to work out your salvation. In other words, put effort into growing in holiness because you live in the presence, we live in the presence of a holy God. That it took, it cost him the second person of the Trinity to be able to work out our salvation, to put to bring us into salvation. So it cost him dearly. So because it cost him dearly, then it is a great price he paid for a great thing, which is our salvation. So in other words, live in his presence working. In other words, don't be careless about it but take seriously God's commitment to our salvation because it cost him everything in sending the Son for us. So the backdrop for Paul saying, work it out with fear and trembling is because God takes it seriously because it cost him his only son. You know, Often it's said, you know, if a company has a problem and it's not that big of an issue, maybe the secretary can handle it, right? And if it gets to be a little bit more bigger of a problem, you know, maybe the supervisor in the office can take care of it. But if it's a really, really big problem, the president of the company comes down and take care of it. Well, Jesus came down and took care of our problem with sin. So it's a really big problem. It cost the Trinity everything they had in sending Jesus. So therefore, our salvation is a great work. And Paul says, work it out. In other words, take it seriously. Guard, you know, cooperate with what the Lord wants to do in your life. And then it says, uh, for God who works in you, God works in you. So it's God working in us through the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So God works in you both to will, to act according to his good purpose. And God's purpose is to make us like Christ. So when you stop and think for a moment that, you know, if we struggle with things in our life internally, it's and it's probably a good thing that we struggle because as someone once said, dead men don't have any struggles, right? <laughs> so, so when you're struggling with stuff, it's good, which means you're alive, you're attentive to the Holy Spirit, he's working within you. The whole purpose is to conform us to Christ. When we have trials in our life, 
you know, when there's diff there's all kinds of maybe setbacks or situations that happen, uh, know that the Lord is at work in those trials to conform us to the image of Christ. So it doesn't necessarily mean that God initiated everything, that he sent the trials. No, it just means that he's in the midst of it, working it out so that we can get conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. That's his purpose. Okay, so uh, the first hindrance then to sustain a heart of happiness is a careless heart. The second hindrance is grumbling and complaining with our words and attitudes. Let's look at that verse again, verses 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining or grumbling so that no one can speak a word of blame against you. Okay, well, Paul deliberately uses the language of grumbling or complaining that goes back to the Old Testament with Israel in the desert. Um, Israel in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, w was complaining and murmuring. Now, it doesn't mean to question our faith. There's nothing wrong with questioning our faith. And Paul's not thinking here of questioning or seeking answers to our faith or struggling with questions. He's talking here about becoming quarrelsome. He's talking here about having an attitude that complains that to the point where it's contentious with the Lord and with others. Uh, and that's the way the Israelites were in the desert. They were being contentious with the Lord. They were doubting his goodness to a point where they want to go back to Egypt. In other words, they want to throw in the towel that says go back to Egypt. You know, we like Egypt better because they serve cucumbers and melons and you know, we have a roof over our head. Even though we were slaves, even though we were trapped and had to worship occult gods, which is what the Egyptians were about, we want the melons. We want the cucumbers. Okay. So, so in other words, they were willing, let's throw away the salvation that God has brought for us so that we can go back to have what we want. And, and Paul is saying that kind of grumbling and complaining is contentious, it's quarrelsome, it's a murmuring, it's basically unbelief, basically. And there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Uh, somebody can doubt and struggle with areas of their life, but unbelief says, and I don't want anything to do with the Lord or his, or, or I, I don't trust him anymore. I'm walking, turning away from him and going my own direction. That's two different things. That's what Israel wanted to do. And Paul says, don't be like them. Don't complain and don't grumble. Look at what he does say. Look at the verse on the page here. He says, and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Giving thanks meant much more than just simply a token of thanks. It meant to have a heart of gratitude that recognized that worship of the Lord and obedience to him was going to, in the end, bring blessing, even if it was going to be costly to us now. You know, even if you couldn't see your way through things now, still maintain an attitude of thanksgiving to him and wanting to trust him and wanting to, wanting to uh, really obey him was going to be worthwhile in the end. It's going to be the blessing. Um, there's a Matt Redman has a song out called uh, Blessed Be Our God. It's really a great song. It talks about, you know, when the sun is shining, we bless God. But when the sun's not shining, you know, we still bless him. You know, we still praise him. You know, uh, whether he gives or whether he takes away, we still praise him. You know, it's this attitude throughout the entire song is that no matter what the circumstances are, Lord, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to praise you. You know, and it's that kind of mindset that Paul is saying for the Christians of Philippi to have. You know, an attitude of blessing God, thank, giving thanks to him. And that's a, um, so a hindrance to sustaining happiness of heart is to be constantly grumbling, complaining, and living in a spirit of unbelief. 
and we'll take a look at some of the opposite things in just a minute. Number three, hindrance to happiness, to sustaining happiness in the heart is committed attachments to values and priorities of the world. Committed attachments. Okay. In other words, bind into the world's agenda, bind into the world's priorities and values, making it our own. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 15. He says, you are to... Uh, clean, uh, says, you are to live clean and pure lives as children of God in a broken and corrupted generation. You are to shine like stars, lighting up a dark world. He's, the language he uses here, live clean and pure lives, is actually the language of Old Testament sacrifice. They would take animals and they would have to sacrifice them to atone for the sins. And the, the animals were to be um, flawless. There'd be no blemish about them. And so Paul is saying our life, he says, is to be lived in that way, flawless. Now, he doesn't mean that being without sin. Obviously, he recognizes that we're that we have to work out our salvation. So, but what he's trying to say is that make it your aim to keep separating yourselves from the values and priorities of the world that will take you away from the Lord. In other words, there was what are you buying into that's really moving you away from the Lord rather than moving you towards Him. So he's saying, live clean and pure lives then, which means that seek the Lord in his agenda, seek the Lord in his truth, seek the Lord in his way of life for you. And here's the reason, so that you can shine like the stars. Uh, Israel was called to be the showcase to the world of God's glory. People that lived and walked in obedience were to be blessed by the Lord, and the nations of the earth were to look at them and say, hey, we want to be like them. We want to worship their God because they're constantly being blessed. Well, that's, Israel had an up-and-down up history with that, you know. So they were sometimes good with that, and sometimes they weren't. What Paul is saying is that us as Christians, we are to be different than the world's priorities, be different than the world's values, be different than the world's agenda, so that we can shine like a star, and people can say, well, you, what's so different about you? Why are you different? You know, why is it that, you know, that... Uh, why is it that your parents get along with each other and really love and genuinely care for one another? Why is it that your husband really cares for you in a way that cares for your spiritual life, cares for everything about you? Why does, why does your wife support you in the way she's doing with that? Why is she not critical of you? You know, How come you're different? In other words, the way that we live, Paul is saying, is to provoke questions in the people around us who don't know Christ. Shine like a star as he says, in a dark world, lighting up a dark world. So another, word, another way of saying that is that Christians are to live distinctively from the culture around them. That doesn't mean we live out of the culture or away from the culture. It means that in the midst of the culture, we live distinctively, distinctively different. And I would say a parish community is to live distinctively different than the culture around us. So when people come to St. Patrick's community or any parish community, they just say, hey, there's a different way of life here. It's, in fact, it's so different that it's different from the world around. I mean, you know, they have their struggles and they have their ups and downs, but, like, they they don't get depressed by that. They don't get hopeless by that. You know, they have a, they're, somehow they're maintaining a loyalty to Christ in the midst of their trials and afflictions, and yet they, they keep devoted to their children, they keep devoted to one another and their marriages, you know, what's different about them? You guys are different. How come you're different? You know, that's what a parish community is to provoke in people. And 
That's the best evangelization. You know, that's the best thing. That's what draws people, uh, you know, when they see something different. And then they begin asking, what's so different about you? Why are you different? And then you can tell them why. You know, it's because of Jesus, because he makes the difference. Look at Psalm 119. Paul says, happy are those who live pure lives, who follow the Lord's teaching, keeps, keep his rules, and who try to obey him with their whole heart. And then Psalm 32. What happiness for, uh, for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Okay, see, Christians are people who to walk with the confidence in knowing the Lord has forgiven them. And as a result of that, they can live a distinctively different way of life because they, they're assured in their hearts of God's forgiveness for them. Okay, number four. Um, this is, again, a hindrance to sustaining happiness in the heart. Turn over is, should be now neglect of the word of life, the word of God. Should be neglect of. St. Paul says in Philippians 2.16, hold tightly to the word of life. Here he's talking about the, the God's word. Um, and hold on to the gospel in the face of persecution. He was exhorting the Philippian Christians to do that. Hold be faithful to God's word in the face of the fact that your neighbors are kind of like making fun of you because you keep to God's standards when the rest of the culture is saying, you know, um, you know, you know, what's wrong with you? You're strange. I, I saw, I think it was on um, the Internet the other day that uh, uh, Tim Tebow broke up with his girlfriend or his girlfriend broke up with him, I should say, because he was a virgin still and she wanted to have sex. And, you know, it was like they were making fun of him, but at the same time, he was giving clearly his, you know, his um, maintaining his priorities for his life. And so here's an example. That would be an example of him holding to the word of life in the face of a culture that was going to make fun of him, you know, because he did so. Neglecting the word of God, however, can be a real uh, stumbling block for us in terms of living in a spirit of happiness or sustaining happiness in our heart. Um, look at what Psalm 119 says. Your principles make me happy, so I never forget your word. God's word has principles of living in it that really will be a source of happiness for us. So Paul is saying, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that on the day of the final judgment, you will stand before the Lord and you will be a community that will be mature before him and that will show that my ministry, he says, will be fruitful. Notice what Paul is saying is that I want, to, I want you guys to be fruitful in your relationship to the Lord and to one another so that when you stand before him in judgment, nobody's going to be ashamed. In fact, he says it will show that my ministry was, was for good. I really worked, it worked out well with you guys. So, so Paul's reward is to see a community that grows in maturity. No. All right. So um, neglecting God's word, not paying attention to it in our life, not really living by its principles, studying it, reflecting on it, praying about it, str- you know, struggling to apply it to our life. When we fail to do those things, then it's, uh, it's a real hindrance to us living in happiness. Number five, another hindrance to living in happiness is selfishness with the use of one's life and relationship to the Lord and his people. 
Again, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Your faith makes you offer your lives as a sacrifice of serving God. If I have to offer my own blood as a sacrifice, I'll be happy and full of joy. And you shall be happy and full of joy with me too. Paul was living a life of sacrificial service to the Philippian community. And again, where do you get that? He got it from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 about Jesus. Because Jesus lived that kind of life. Remember, for Paul, Jesus is the model. The model servant. So he says you want to be what is a, is a hindrance to happiness is holding on to your life in a way that you don't share it with others. That you don't share your resources and gifts and abilities and talents with others. You don't share your faith with others. He says holding on to your life is going to be a, a hindrance to sustaining happiness in the heart. And Paul says, look at my life. He says, I'm willing to be a sacrificial offering for you guys. You know, and actually he was, because he was in jail when he was writing this, because he was a witness for Christ, and the Roman Empire put him in jail because of that. So, um, for Paul then, participation in the self-emptying love of Christ, he says, was a key to living in happiness and working at his salvation. Okay, let's take a look at five practices now to sustain happiness in our life. And what I'm going to look at tonight with this is going to some of the saints and what they have to say about this. The first is obedience by working out and making continual progress with salvation. The Lord can give us his spirit in baptism and confirmation. Then we're called to... And he gives that, by the way, as a free gift and freely given to us that flows from the cross of his son. But then he wants us to progressively work out our salvation. In other words, be committed to what he's given so that we work it out in our lives. And work out means simply to grow and be transformed and changed by that. So let me give you an example of that. Um, a caterpillar is an ugly thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's slow. It's slimy takes about all day to move two feet, basically, okay? But when it undergoes a process of transformation or metamorphosis, uh, the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, um, which is something beautiful is born. It's a process, though, of something that work on the inside that tries to show up on the outside. For example, a butterfly flies beautifully, but before it can fly, do you know, and it's inside... It's strengthening its legs as it develops. It's building strength. So that when it does finally break out of the cocoon, you know, it's able to fly. But it was the struggle that brought the butterfly to flight. So same thing with the Christian, is that God is at work in us to transform us. And there's a struggle at times in us, right? Sometimes we don't want to be changed. Sometimes it's hard to change. Sometimes it's difficult to change within, you know. But when we yield to the Lord, allow him to work in us, you know, and do the things he wants to do in us, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's like, when's this going to end, you know. And, but the result of it is the beauty like of a butterfly with the power to be able to live well and enjoy in our life even though there was a struggle to get to that point. So that's what Paul is saying here. Be obedient to the Lord by working out and making continual progress with your salvation. St. John Paul II said that all the Christian faithful of whatever state or rank are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. In other words, every Christian is called 
to undergo a transformation with their life, you know, in order to, to really live in happiness. In fact, the source of all unhappiness is our sin and its effects in our life. The sooner we get free of it, the happier we'll be. It's as simple as that. And when we enter into God's purposes and allow him to work in our hearts to change us, then the happier we'll become. The more joyful we'll become, the freer we will become. So Paul says, be obedient then. Secondly, um, persevere or persevering in good works. Teresa Alosso said this, perfection consists in doing his will and being what he wills us to be who resists his grace in nothing. When we talk about persevering in good works, works of mercy, um, you know, it could be works of mercy, it could be just simple things like praying. That's a good work, praying. Okay, taking time to pray each day is a good work. Um, taking time to study God's word, that's a good work. Uh, taking time to serve others, that's a good work. There's a lot of, a lot of good works covers a large category of things here. Um, it's something, things that we do personally for ourselves to develop our faith, but it's also what we do for others. Uh, the point being that whatever we do, Therese is saying here, is by the grace of God. In other words, he initiates it within us. We cooperate with it. If he inspires us to pray, he says, Lord, I'm going to take time to pray. You know, um, And even if I don't feel really an inspiration to pray, I know if I take commit myself to the time to pray each day, I know that... That's a grace the Lord gives me to be able to do just that. Therese was saying that uh, perfection, persevering good works, is doing his will. So that's how we grow in, in sustaining happiness in our heart is by doing his will. Now, some of the, sometimes doing his will simply means to show up at prayer each day. That's doing his will. Yeah. Uh, they say that you know, 70% of growing in holiness is just simply showing up in prayer. Okay, so show up. You may not feel like it. You may feel like oh, this is a bad day, bad morning. I have other things to do. I got so many things on my mind. Just show up. <laughs> Therese tells the story where she, I th- you've heard me say this, I think, before, where she, she would, um, she thought of herself, she thought of like Teresa of Avila, because she's a Carmelite and she was of the Carmelite tradition. And she saw Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, were like huge giants. She said, I could never be that way. Never in the world. She used to tell the Lord, there's no way I can be like them. And then in her day, there was the invention called the elevator, right? <laughs> that was the invention. And uh, the Lord brought to her mind this ele- elevator. And she's like, how do you get on an elevator? You just walk on and it takes you up. And the Lord said, that's what you do. I want you to do, Therese. Surrender yourself to me. Put yourself in my hands and I'll take you to the place where you need to be. And she said, hey, that's the secret of being a saint. Put yourself in the Lord's hands. Let him take you where you need to be. So when we talk about good works, whether it be our personal prayer, praying with others, serving others, works of mercy, whatever that is, we're doing the Lord's will. We're putting ourselves in his hands so he can take us to the next place he wants us to be spiritually. Okay, number three is... This is what these are practices of sustained happiness. Number three is wise use of speech. Proverbs 18, verse 21, it's not on your paper here. It says that in the tongue is life and death. Okay. Um, the mark of maturity in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the wise use of speech. 
Um, Paul prays, and I think it's Colossians, he says, he says to the Lord, Lord, help season my speech with grace, he says. <laughs> so let's look at what Bernard of Clairvaux says here. It's not enough, he says, I say, to guard one's tongue from these and similar kinds of nastiness. Even slight offenses must be avoided. If anything may be termed slight that is directed against a brother for the purpose of hurting him, since merely to be angry with one's brother makes one liable to the judgment of God. Jesus said it this way that we'll be accountable for every word that comes out of our mouth. You know, Our speech, how we speak to one another and about one another, um, that is really a mark of maturity or immaturity in our life. It's, it's also a mark of whether we're going to sustain happiness in our life. Because if we're filling our, our speech with uh, derogatory comments, slander, gossip, accusatory speech, um, just negative attitudes, you know, it's going to create an added, a heart attitude that is going to be also reflective of what comes out of our mouth. Jesus said it's not what goes into a person that follows them, it's what comes out of them that defiles them. So our speech reflects what's going on inside of our heart. And so we have to have our speech sanctified. All of us do. <laughs> and we live in a culture, right, that is careless with speech, with, you know, with use of words. I mean, just look at all the, you know, the gossip magazines and all that stuff. Our culture is just very careless with the use of speech. And unfortunately, the Christian community can be that way too. And so we see the exhortation to use well our words because it will certainly control the condition of our heart eventually. So, okay. Why number four then um, for sustaining happiness in the heart is confidence in the word of God. There's a, a tendency in human nature to drift away from God and rely upon ourselves. And, and I put here confidence in the word of God. And the key word here is confidence because it's not just simply reading God's word or as a, as a spiritual book or as good insights or inspi inspiration. It's like going to God's word as God himself speaking to us and having confidence in what he says and what he's asking us to do and what he's revealing to us about himself. It's a matter of, of trusting in the authority of God's word over our life. It's like going to God's word and saying, Lord, your word is going to be more important than what my attitudes are. So that my, if my attitudes clash with your word, guess what's going to change? My attitudes. Okay? If I read your word, Lord, and, it, and, it, and your word conflicts with the way I'm living, my lifestyle, my choices, guess what? My lifestyle's got to change. Doesn't mean there's not a struggle in that. Doesn't mean it's not, you know, it's going to be a long hoe. But the attitude is that I want to change because your word has authority over my life. Having confidence in the word of God means that God's word is, has the power to transform me and change me and bring me into happiness when I follow it and obey it. And I don't need to rely upon myself. Again, as I mentioned, there's a tendency in human nature to drift away from God and trust and rely upon ourselves. Our confidence is to be more in him than ourselves. Let's take a look at what Teresa of Avila says. A great aid to going against your will is to bear in mind continually how all is vanity and how quickly everything comes to an end. This helps to remove our attachment to trivial and to the trivial and center on it 
center it on what will never end. Um, Teresa, you know, is saying that how to have a vision of our life in which, you know, how quickly it can end and how short it is compared to eternity. She says this will help us to rely less on ourselves and more on the Lord. Now, we all know that, right, from, from just the newspapers and the internet accounts and the news media over the last couple of months, just of the violence that's taken place in our culture and throughout the world, how quickly life can end, how short it is. What Teresa is saying is, put your confidence in the Lord and his word, because these are the things that are going to have eternal consequences and eternal matters for our life. So she says a helpful way to do that is to recognize how quickly life comes to an end. How much of what we are preoccupied with is going to be trivial in light of eternity. And to really focus upon the things that are that has that have eternal significance for our life. You remember, um, some of you may remember Reggie Jackson. Uh, he was known as Mr. October, okay, because he's... He seemed to always show up during the World Series and really do excellent and hit you know, home runs like crazy. Uh, however, to get to the World Series, he had to play the regular season, which he did not like at all. Okay? He wasn't really great in the regular season. So the question was asked one day by a reporter, well, how, how do you do it? You know, how do you, you know, play mediocre ball throughout the regular season, yet when October comes, like you're fantastic? And he says, I keep my eye on October through the regular season. So what Teresa is saying here is keep your eye on the end goal, which is our eternal happiness. And that will help us be the lens by which we evaluate what are the things that are really significant and important in our life and what the things are not significant and what are not important. What are the things that we need to change? What are the things we need to avoid when we look at the end goal? When we look at the eternity that we've been uh, given as part of our salvation. Okay, number five. The last thing is poured out in service to others. So a, a, a practice to sustain happiness is pouring yourself out in service to others. Again, and following the model of Jesus. Now, serving here others is a little bit different than good works, although it's part of it. Good works covers a wide category of things. There's things that we can do personally for ourselves that can be good works. But here we're talking about being other-centered. We're talking about being other-directed. So let's take a look at Francis de Sales and what he says. The works of good Christians are such worth that heaven has given us for them. But it is not because they proceed from us and are the wool of our hearts, but because they are dyed with the blood blood of the Son of God. So our souls, which of themselves are not able to produce one single good thought towards God's service, being steeped in sacred love by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, produces sacred actions which tend towards and carry us to immortal glory. What's he saying here? He's saying that even our good, our desires for service to others is born out of the Holy Spirit inspiring us. It's born out of grace. Why is that important? Because when we have that those desires rise up within us, that we feel that call within us to serve, we hear the importance of that, that's the Holy Spirit giving us grace to do just that. Cooperate with it, he says. Because it's a key to sustaining happiness in our hearts. 
Catherine Santa was really great with this. She was talking about this mostly in prayer, but just to show the inspirations of following the inspirations of the Lord. She said, when you're praying, she says, whether it be your rosary, whether it be a priest, if he prays liturgy hours, you know, divine office, uh, or whatever. She said, and the Lord begins to inspire you to pray in a different way or gives you things that he wants you to pray. You feel that inspiration? She says, drop the rosary, drop the liturgy hours, and follow the inspirations of the Lord, she says. She says, that's how you grow in, real, in communion and friendship with him by following his inspirations. She says, now, if you're a priest, you have to go back and finish the divine office, she said, okay? But the, her point was, hey, look, you know, follow his inspirations because when he gives that, it's his grace inspiring you in a particular direction. And then she said, the Lord is always giving his inspirations. He's always giving his graces to us. We're just not always attentive to it. We're not paying attention to it. She says, the more we are sensitive to it and go with it, she says, the more that we'll grow in communion and friendship and holiness with him, the more we'll become like him. So, pouring ourselves out in service to others, the Lord will inspire us to be a to do acts of service to others. Sometimes they're small and behind the scenes, sometimes they're larger, but the point is that he's constantly inspiring us. He's constantly, he's constantly given us the grace to be attentive to the needs of those around us. She's, both Francis and Catherine would say, go with it. Because when you do, you'll be growing in friendship with the Lord. Okay, so uh, that's... Five practices to sustain happiness in our heart. Let's take a few minutes, uh, maybe about 15 minutes or so, and let me talk about what practice, let me say one practice you want to avoid that really struck you, one practice that you want to sustain in your heart uh, that will help you with growing in happiness. <laughs>